Welcome to the World We Got This podcast, brought to you by King's College London. In this series, we take a look at the complex issues we face in the world today. We ask those researching and studying these fields about the scale of the challenge and ask them what society and each of us as individuals can do to help solve it. Hello and welcome to this episode of Well We Got This in Conversation. You're about to listen to a conversation between Masters alumna Lynette Lim and me, Julia Stepowska. Lynette graduated from King's in 2015 with a Masters in International Development with reference to emerging economies. In this episode, she speaks about her experiences studying with the Department of International Development, which was, back then, an institute, and how her elective models in the King's India Institute helped to shape her dissertation idea and her journey on to doing a PhD. She's currently doing a PhD at the School of Politics and International Relations at the University College Dublin, and her research is fully funded by the Irish Research Council. Now, Lynette's originally from Singapore, and in this episode, she also shares her experiences working as a foreign correspondent, her interest in state-society relations, and why it matters that journalists in China are being repressed. Let's get on to what she has to say. Welcome, Lynette, to the podcast. Thank you so much for being here. Hi, Julia. Thanks for having me. So what was your master's dissertation and is it at all related to what you're doing as a PhD? So at first glance, it's not related. Um, My master's dissertation is about um, the determinants of redistributive policy in India. And the research puzzle is why some Indian states far outperform others in the Human Development Index, or HDI. So, you know, it's based on indicators like education, access to water, access to sanitation, infant mortality rate. And, you know, based on the dissertation, there are two findings. Um, One is that states where there is a high degree of political competition, party competition, where there's very little incumbency, generally have high levels of HDI. And then the second finding is that states where the caste makeup for the legislature, uh, where the caste makeup are very proportional to the population's makeup, we also see um, higher HDI. So, you know, you can say that in places where the political representation is representative of, you know, the voters, we see more redistributive outcomes. And the dissertation was really the idea was finally landed upon after like quite a bit of iteration. So the initial idea, I'm someone who's really interested in state-society relations, how the state can affect or can determine, you know, human outcomes, can determine development or can determine inequalities. So I've always been obsessed with that. And I came to my supervisor at the time, who was the chair of the Department of International Development. And I said I wanted to do something about state and worker relations, comparing China and India. And that topic was so big, it was really unwieldy for a master's thesis to be done in one year. Also, the two countries were vastly different, and it was very difficult to you know, make a comparison within a one-year study And then, you know, after various um, iterations, I landed on the topic of redistributive policy within India. And now I'm doing a PhD. It's related to China. 
having been influenced by my career in China after my master's. And that's why I am. So we can talk about the PhD later on. Um, but I guess it's kind of linked because I've always been interested in state actions and state society relations. So why India then? So at the point, I think I was like really influenced by my internship experiences. I had spent about eight months there um, during my undergraduate days. And at the time at King's, there was also a, a King's India Institute where we could take elective modules from. And there was a particular module on India's political economy that I took. And I think that gave me a lot of ideas. It was a very rich country to be able to do research on because you have a country with many different state systems. Some states like Tamil Nadu and Kerala, for example, you have uh, fairly representative legislatures where, um, you know, 80% of legislature might be lower caste. And that is very reflective of the population. And then you have Rajasthan, for example, where the majority of the legislature are of a caste that constitutes 2% of the population. So it's very rich because you have such vast differences within a single country and it's easy to make comparisons. And then you also have states like West Bengal with interesting political systems with a history of being controlled by the Communist Party, for example. So it's very, very interesting because of the diversity in politics within the country. That's great that those elective um, modules allowed you to discover this and then it led to your dissertation. What led you to the Department of International Development in the first place? So my undergraduate background was in business management. And then I became a business reporter. I was actually quite a mature master's student in a sense that I didn't, you know, come straight from a bachelor's degree. I had worked for, you know, five, six years. And I had a very clear goal at the time, which was to kind of pivot to a different sector. So, you know, I didn't want to be pigeonholed as, you know, like someone that was educated in business school and then went on to become a business journalist. I, I just wanted to be able to pivot. And I think um, a master's is always a good way to do that. And at the time, my plan was actually to try to work in development or in aid. So then logically it was, oh, okay, a degree, a master's degree in international development. But I think it was far more than that because the degree also had an element of... Um, practical training, you know, the professors tried to inculcate or expose you to what the field really was. And I think by the end of it, I was a little unsure about whether I wanted to be in international aid, you know, development aid. Um, so I think it's, it's good in a sense that it was very realistic because, you know, you're exposed to the reality that it's not as great as it might seem from the outside. So the UN, for example, can be very bureaucratic or, you know, there are a lot of cases where it's very difficult to get funding, to get projects off the ground. So that's the reality that you face. And having gone through the program, you come out with clear eye of the industry and whether or not you still want to be in it. And I think the fact that King's was in London there was a quite a good critical mass of organizations, you know, headquartered in London. And I was able to do an internship during the course of my, of my master's with an NGO that did um, development projects in India and Nepal. 
So then that also gave me hands-on experience with regards to working in the sector and seeing if I still wanted to continue to work in the sector. And I actually, I did eventually go back. So I had to serve a bond with my previous employer, which was the public broadcaster that sponsored my studies. But then after I finished the bond, I did work for a Singaporean philanthropic organization with projects in Cambodia and Myanmar. So I think the master's was a really nice springboard for me to build up my credibility within aid, within international development. You know, you know the lingo, you know what the feel is like, who the potential employers are, and you know, you can kind of find your spot within it. So there are some people who would want to work for government organizations. There are some people who would want to work for their home governments. A lot of my colleagues within the master's program um, went to work for their home governments in Australia and in Germany. And then there are some people who want who would go on to work for intergovernmental agencies like World Bank or the UN. And then people who choose to work for like smaller grassroots organizations or philanthropic organizations. So I think going through the master's helps you feel your way through like where your niche is and what and where the possibilities are. And how does journalism fit into this? I mean, do you think having done journalism before doing the master's helped and then you've you've gone back into journalism? So yeah, tell me more about that. I think personally for me, it was more of trying to diversify and pivot away from journalism. I was really burnt out and I needed to do something that I, that I felt was my initial motivator for being a journalist in the first place, which was to do something in the public good. And in my burnt out state, I felt like I wasn't doing it anymore. So I think I was looking for a career pivot and that helped. And I got back into it. (laughs) It's like love, hate, you know, in and out. And I got back into it eventually. Um, I left the role at the philanthropic organization because the opportunity just came to me. It wasn't that um, I was, you know, looking again. Um, My previous employer was looking for somebody to be based in China for them. And I think an ex-colleague mentioned it to me and I wasn't looking at all. So uh, he or she said that, uh, oh, this position in China is open. And I knew that if you hadn't left the company, you would have been considered for it. You know, you would have been a, a good candidate. And then I, I I looked at it and I was, oh, wow, it's, it's now or never because, you know, I was almost 30 at a time. So I was telling myself, like, if I... If I don't move, I I probably wouldn't move, you know. So, and it was a dream of mine, to be honest, when I was being a journalist, to be able to be, um, I was always a financial journalist and that entailed reporting on the banks and the Singapore economy. But there were frequent trips abroad to cover stuff like that were very finance driven or, or economics driven. So like the G20, you know, like international events or like, bilateral events, but I was never stationed permanently abroad, which was kind of like a dream of mine. So I took it up and then my stint there gave me a lot of material for research ideas. And you know, that researcher in me kicked in again, but then I I still wasn't sure. It was a seed that was definitely planted at King's because I remember the the module convener for the India, Indian political economy module, he he said to me like, oh, Lynette, if ever there's one day you want to do a PhD, 
I will be happy to write you a reference letter. And that was a very remote um, possibility at the time. I wasn't thinking about it. But then it was a seed that was planted in me that someone gave me the encouragement that someone felt that I was qualified or would be a good PhD student. It gave me that confidence to think about it and it lit like a flame in me, I guess. So that leads nicely into what exactly is your PhD research about? So during the course of living in China, I think there were obviously a lot of barriers to overcome being a foreign journalist within a closed system where the idea of you know freedom of information, freedom of speech and expression does not gel well at all with you know the party-led ideology on what journalism should be. You know, so I think foreign journalists come directly in conflict with the state that they're supposed to be reporting on. So within China, there were many, um, you know, good Chinese journalists trying to do really good work. And, you know, from various anecdotal evidence or reports, you can see that the golden age of that local journalism, investigative journalism, where they were kind of pushing the edge within the bounds of, you know, that party mechanism of control, of directives to censorship, you know, of propaganda, where they're still pushing the bounds within the constraints they had. That golden age, I think really, you know, many people have a consensus that it ended sometime in 2013 to 2015. So then I think a lot of the pressure moved to independent journalists, bloggers, anonymous citizen journalists, and of course, foreign correspondents who somehow still had free reign to report because obviously being foreign kind of protects you from detainments, from arrests. You still had some sort of recourse through your embassies, you know, on the ground. So I think that that's how the information environment shifted. And that was the information environment that was existing when I entered um, late 2018. And then I had the idea that, okay, this is this was a very interesting group of people to study because they're coming directly in contact with a state that wants to manage and control them. And I think I, I want to look at how conditions have deteriorated over the years. So if you recall in 2008, because of the Beijing Olympics, the government actually permanently um, lifted reporting restrictions on foreign media. So before 08, foreign media in China had to get permission to report anywhere they wanted to go. So if I was based in Beijing, I wanted to go to Chengdu, I had to write to the Chengdu party office, you know, the propaganda or publicity office there to say that I'm coming to Chengdu, can I do a report there and wait, you know, months or weeks for no reply. But with 08, the government actually said that, okay, foreign journalists based here, once you have uh, approval to be based here and a press card, you can actually travel around the country and report unfettered. So there was a very substantial loosening of restrictions in 08. And I think ever since um, the current president, Xi Jinping, has come into power, there's also a very visible tightening of restrictions. And this is something that is systematically done, yet it hasn't been systematically studied. And it's really something that is not reported. 
Because unlike the 08 loosening, which was, you know, like a government decree, it was reported, a lot of the actions that have been done since 2012 when Xi came into power, they are informal actions, unofficial actions. So they're not on paper, but like the tightening is real. And because it's not on paper, it's not reported, it's not documented. It is documented in some way because the Foreign Correspondents Club of China has annual surveys on uh, media freedom. And there is some qualitative measure where you can say, where, where you know journalists are saying that, yeah, I'm being blocked, I'm being obstructed in this way, in that way. Um, but still, it's not very systematic because it's so qualitative, it's so based on you know, these um, anecdotes. Um, so I was really moved to try to, you know, try to measure this degree of how the reporting conditions have deteriorated. And there's one other element. So apart from a general deterioration, from working on the ground, I noticed a different thing. And that was that there was a deliberate invocation of anti-foreign and anti-West sentiment to block reporters from doing the work on the ground. And I'll give you a couple of examples as to what I mean by that. So one is sources and local colleagues that work with the foreign correspondents would often be threatened by government officials with words like, you're a traitor for working with foreign media, or don't help these guys because you're on our side. So the idea of there's a us and them, there's a foreign and uh, Chinese or foreign and domestic is more pronounced than ever before. And it's probably more pronounced than, you know, in, in 10 years. And it matters because it changes relationships with people on the ground, where in 08, there was a general optimism and positivity towards the outside world. There is really a closing up that has never been seen in 10 years or more. So how exactly do you do that then? Get all the data for your research if there are all these restrictions? So the first part of it is I want to establish whether or not my gut feel that there has been this, you know, invocation of anti-foreign, anti-Western sentiment. I'm trying to measure it looking at state newspapers. And that's something that can be done because um, there are archives you can access and you can track, um, you, you know, using quantitative text analysis you can put, you know, all the words into the system and you can access whether... So I, I have, you know, outlined several terms I want to use. And, you know, I, I'm looking at Chinese newspapers, what they're telling their domestic audience. So it would translate it into English. The terms would be, you know, anti-China forces and smear China. And that's a term they love to use because they like to evoke a sense of outsiders or foreigners having ill intent and trying to stop China's rise. So these are two good terms that I think um, can predict or can show whether, you know, newspapers have been using them a lot more. And like from a very preliminary analysis, like it has increased substantially in 2018, 2020, kind of aligned with the time Trump started the trade war. So, you know, I think it's also in response to a sudden attack, you know, when you have someone saying um, China, 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 we want to stop trading with them and China virus, things like that. There is this response to hit back. So then how does it impact foreigners who actually live in China and foreign reporters who live in China? 
Um, the second part, um, I'm hoping to investigate by possibly doing an online survey, reaching a random sample of Chinese. And I want to, you know, kind of have a control group and a treatment group where the treatment group is exposed to some of the rhetoric in the state media. And then you can try to see whether or not after being ex exposed to that sort of propaganda about, you know, foreigners smearing China, anti-China forces, whether or not they are less likely or more likely to want to engage with a foreign person. And, and then finally, I think the last part of my research, I'm hoping to interview foreign correspondents who are still on the ground or who have been forced to work remotely. So in the last couple of years, foreign correspondents have been either due to visa denials or harassment, have been forced to work out of Seoul in Korea or Taipei in Taiwan or in Singapore because they can't work physically in China. And I'm hoping to do an interview with people who are still in China, people who have been forced out to try and see like what their experiences were to find out like what what is the nature of the repression they experience, which could be, you know, the, was the repression mainly physical? Were they always like blocked or removed from sensitive places? Or was it mainly indirect? So their sources were told not to speak to them. Their local journalists, their local colleagues were pressured to resign from their work. So it's just to draw out the nature of the repression. When the repression happens, does the repression happen regardless of whether you're working on a sensitive story or not? Or does the repression happen regardless of whether you're from a very well-known media like the New York Times, you know, a hard-hitting one like Bloomberg, Reuters? Or does the, is the repression a blanket one that applies to you just because you are foreign media status? I can't imagine being in it, having to report on what's happening and having all those blocks. So why does this matter to people outside of China? I think for me, when I started doing this research, it was getting a little personal for me because I was doing a lot of the reporting and I was living in China and I was trying to tell my dad a lot of the stuff that was happening to me and he didn't seem to get it. So one example was in China at a time where they had a very um, strict adherence to a zero COVID policy. Um, they had a lot of uh, quarantine facilities that were being built. So as soon as you, know, you might be a close contact, you got hauled off to one of these facilities. And it was absolutely horrible because there was no privacy. It was like a field camp. You might have four beds to a little square and you know you could see the person that you had to be sleeping with on a single bed and the lights were turned on 24 hours there were no dividers there were no curtains or doors there was no medicine as as well so it's really like removing you from the population so that you wouldn't infect the rest. But then they didn't care what happened to you and the facilities were terrible because they were overcrowded. So I told my dad about this and he was like, no, I saw on the TV that the facilities looked great. And he sent me a link. The link was from the Singapore Public Broadcaster, but because they were fed footage from the Chinese broadcaster, CCTV, it was um, obviously a really nice, clean, sanitized image of the facility that had just been built and was not used yet. 
So then I told him the full story and I showed him um, eyewitness accounts, people who were moved there and how they were going about their day-to-day -day lives. So then I began to feel like the information system really is altered if our public broadcasters no longer have correspondents on the ground or eyewitnesses on the ground. And they were relying on feeds from the state media. And it is very common for, you know, broadcasters all over the world to have contracts, you know, where they have feeds and take each other's feeds, right? But you have to have a diversity of voices and you have to cross-check that with, you know, what's happening on the ground. So at the time, I think he wasn't exposed to enough, you know, material. So he thought that, oh, zero COVID was great was working out great in terms of saving lives, which was true as well in terms of, you know, allowing the economy to continue, which was also true. But then the bad part was also true and he wasn't exposed to that. So then that made me really worried about how the information environment, the global information environment was being altered if the critical voices within the Chinese borders cannot get out effectively. And that's what's happening. Well, I'm very glad that you're doing this research. I think your findings are going to be very fascinating and influential. And I'm so glad that that person in the India Institute planted that seed and told you to, you know, encourage you to go. Do your, did he give you a reference letter in the end? Yes, he did. And he's um, Professor Adnan Nasimullah. So he's still there. You can still find him. There were so many professors at King's that, you know, had such a great impact on me. Professor Nahi Kang, who's also still at the Department of International Development, and the previous chair, who's kind of semi-retired now, Professor Peter Kingstone, he's no longer there, he's semi-retired. They all had a huge impact on me. But I think more than that, it was the fact that, you know, the Institute what they try to bring every day in their work, you know, they're really informed by how to make the world a better place. And, you know, they try to kind of challenge the students to look at their research with that at the core. And I think, you know, even the readings that we were exposed to, one particular reading um, that that would always move me through the master's program was Amartya Sen's concept of life chances. And it was about, you know, how states determine or, or not the life chances they give to citizens, you know. And it gives, it really, it was really so striking to me because it was um, the idea that, you know, what you have is unearned, you know, the privilege that you have. It's, it's due to so many reasons you happen to be born in a state where they were good at creating life chances that were good at, you know, giving education to their people, and this is entirely a lottery, you know. And then it kind of made me feel that, yeah, if it's a lottery, I think, you know, we should spend our time trying to level the playing field. Wow, that's been so interesting. I've learned a lot that I, I didn't know. And it's, I mean, it's tough being a journalist in general. Um, it's tough reporting and having editors, you know, have the final say, but it sounds like it's even more tough when you've got the state involved. So thank you so much for coming and sharing your story. And I'm so glad that Kings has helped you along that journey as well. And um, all the best with your PhD research. Thank you. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to the Well We Got This In Conversation podcast with Lynette Lim and Julia Stempowska.
You can find out more about Lynette's research on the University College Dublin website or by following Lynette on Twitter at Lynette, L-I-N-E-T-T-E-M-Lim. This episode was brought to you by the School of Global Affairs and was produced by Julia Stempowska and edited by Rachel Wall. You have been listening to The World We Got This podcast. This episode was produced by the Faculty of Social Science and Public Policy at King's College London and edited by Rachel Wall. To find out more about the research at King's on this and other global challenges, please visit our website, kcl.ac.uk. Please review, subscribe and share the podcast so you don't miss an episode and it's easier for others to find out about the series. 